the thing. Um, well, Kim is going to teach us this morning, and I'm going to pray for her so we can get started. Oh, Father, thank you so much for being here with us again. Thanks for bringing us together. Thanks for even all the um, happy chatter, um, connecting with each other. We are just so grateful for our sisters uh, in this body, Lord, that we can come together every week, uh, share our burdens, share our joys, um, dig into your word together. And Lord, we're just, yeah, it's, we're just so grateful, uh, especially as we see other parts of the world that don't have these freedoms. So thank you. Uh, for that gift. And thanks for Kim. She also is a gift to us, Lord. Uh, thanks for the time um, that she's invested into this passage, uh, just sitting in your words and sitting in your uh, thoughts and your heart for us. Lord, will you help her as she communicates uh, your teaching to us this morning? Will you open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes um, as we pay attention to how you're going to meet each one of us this morning? So uh, give her your uh, calm and humble confidence uh, as she shares what you've given her this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You like it in here, in your pocket? Uh, in here. That's good. Thanks. <clears throat> all right. Good morning. How's everybody? Um, so in the spring of 2018, we started walking through the Book of Romans in junior high Sunday school, um, which was quite a task. We just did it for the spring. We only got through chapter eight, um, but it was a really rewarding season. Um, but if you had any kids in junior high at that time, don't ask them about it because I'm sure they won't remember. Um, but so you would have thought when I knew we were talking teaching Romans this year that I would have looked and seen like, hey, what chapters did I cover? I already got information for them, but I didn't. And of course, when I finally got my passage, I realized that I had taught the information for last week and I had taught the information for next week, but I hadn't taught this week's information. Um, but for once, the Lord used my laziness for good um, because when I got a chance to read this passage, it was just such a good, refreshing time to kind of soak in um, what the Lord has done for us, um, that I'm really glad that this was the passage that um, was chosen for me. So let's get started. Last week, Carrie shared the bad news with us. Not one of us is righteous, whether Jew, Gentile, believer, Sunday school teacher, missionary, no matter how good we are by human standards, we'll never be holy enough to stand before God. We have all sinned, and we are all deserving of condemnation. This week, I get to share the good news, God's way of salvation for the ungodly. And my passage starts with, but now, the pivotal moment in salvation history. We were lost without hope, but now, God does not leave us there. We were dead in our sin, but now, we find grace for the guilty. My passage is pretty short, so I'm going to read through it, but we're going to break it into two sections. So we'll start with verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward 
as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Tim Keller calls this the heart of the heart of the heart of Paul's letter. God knows that we cannot keep his laws. He always knew that. But he loves us too much to be separated from us. So he provides a way for us to be justified. Before we were all condemned, but now God steps in. There's so much richness and depth in these verses. Um, I really struggled to organize the material. So I hope this kind of flows and makes sense. I want to start with the topic of justification. In order to be in the presence of God, we need to be justified. Verse 24 says, we are justified by God's free grace through the redemption that is in Jesus. Justification from the definition at the front of our book is an act of free grace by which God pardons all our sins. An easy way to remember it is that justification is just as if we had never sinned. This is different from forgiveness. Forgiveness would be like canceling the debt owed by sin. The sin still happened. We're just not holding it against the person anymore. But when we are justified, our record of sin no longer exists. The slate is wiped clean. As far as God is concerned, we never sinned. And this justification is freely given to us. It cannot be earned. Justification is a uniquely Christian idea. No other religion offers pardon and a new life to those who have done nothing to, to deserve it. To the contrary, we've done much to deserve punishment instead. It is by God's grace, his unmerited favor to utterly undeserving people that this is possible. But how is it possible? How can a just God justify the ungodly? Our God is a holy God, and he cannot be in the presence of sin. We are sinful people, and we cannot be in the presence of a holy God. We've already determined that not one of us can do any good thing. If God simply chooses to forgive us, he becomes indifferent to sin. There is no justice for those sinned against, and this would contradict God's very nature. God is the God of justice, and he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. But surely our justification has nothing to do with us. We are sinful, guilty, hopeless, and helpless. We cannot be right with God. So in order for us to be justified, it must happen by a work of God, something not dependent on us. God does not disregard justice. Rather, he turns it on himself. Our justification comes from a righteousness outside of ourselves, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who in full submission to God the Father's will, freely and voluntarily gave his life and his perfect righteous record for sinners like us. Our salvation is free, but it was not cheap. Isaiah 53 foreshadows Jesus' suffering. He was despised, rejected, bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, oppressed and afflicted like a lamb that is led to slaughter, 
It is only possible for God to declare the unrighteous to be righteous with, without either compromising his own righteousness or condoning our unrighteousness through the righteousness that comes from outside of us, the righteousness of Christ. Up until Christ, humanity tried to earn its right standing with God through obeying the law, which we know is impossible. But now in Christ, there is a righteousness we can receive that is not based on our obedience to God's law, but based on Jesus's perfect record and crucifixion. When we are in Christ, God looks at us and sees Christ's righteousness. Paul gives us three things to consider as we look at what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. God has redeemed his people, propitiated his wrath, and demonstrated his righteousness. It's important to note that Paul in verse 24 says that the righteousness of God apart from the law has been manifested. Other translations say has been clearly revealed or God has now shown us. Has been is the present perfect tense. It refers to a time period which began in the past and continues in the present and moves into the future. This is to emphasize that this was not a new plan. This was not God's plan B. From the foundation of the world, this was God's plan for salvation. The righteousness of God through Jesus, apart from the law, was available for all who had faith, beginning before Christ, continuing in the present, and it will be there in the future. Jesus's life, death, and resurrection is the crux of human history. Those before Jesus looked forward to his coming, and those after Jesus look back to the work that he has accomplished. And all are saved through faith in the one God sent. And the law and the prophets both testify to that. From the very beginning, the purpose of the law was to point us to Jesus, the only one who could perfectly fulfill it. God's people failing to obey and our failure to obey bring us to the realization that we can't satisfy God's demand for holiness or his requirement for justice. All through, throughout the Old Testament, we see God's plan. I hope you'll take notice of some of the examples as we walk through my talk. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Galatians 4.4. 4. So first, Christ offers redemption for sinners. The word redemption is now largely associated with Jesus and his sacrifice, but its original meaning was in the realm of commerce. Redemption to the audience that Paul was writing to would have meant a payment made to purchase a slave, not so that the buyer could have ownership of them, but for the sole purpose of setting them free. Jesus is our redemption the ransom that was paid to set us free from sin. It was very easy to fall into debt in Old Testament times, but it was very difficult to pay that debt back. And when you failed to pay your debt, you became enslaved to the one you owed. God's law made a provision for this, a way that his people could be set free, a kinsman redeemer. Someone, actually it was supposed to be your closest relative, who would take the loss and pay the price to set you free. 
Ruth and Boaz are probably the most well-known example of the kinsman-redeemer relationship. It's a beautiful love story of redemption, and don't we like to think of ourselves like that? We being Ruth, the willing participants looking for someone to rescue us. We get cleaned up, we make sure we smell good, and then we go and present ourselves to our Redeemer, saying, spread your wings over your servant, for you are my Redeemer. But in reality, our story much more resembles Gomer and Hosea. Hosea, a prophet of God. Interestingly, his name is a variation of the name Jesus, which means to save. He was married to Gomer. Gomer was an unfaithful wife, deserving of death according to the penalty for adultery. But God tells Hosea, go and love her anyway, even though she continues to break your heart. And Hosea doesn't just love her, he actually has to buy her back from whatever form of slavery she has gotten herself tangled up in. He has to pay for what was already his. He has to suffer the humiliation and the hurt that loving someone who constantly rejects, rejects him causes. Just like God did for Israel and for us. We are the unfaithful ones. We don't seek God. We don't do good. But God pursues us. He comes after us and he redeems us because he is faithful when we are faithless. Christ is the ultimate Kingsman redeemer. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often have I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. We are slaves to sin and death and judgment. We are helpless to repay this debt. But Jesus longs to be in relationship with us. He continues to love us despite our hard-heartedness. Jesus pays the price for our rebellion through his redemptive work on the cross. Freedom from that debt has come. Second, Christ is our propitiation. A propitiation is a sacrifice offered or an act performed in order to turn away the wrath of a God. The Hebrew word was primarily used in the Old Testament to refer to the mercy seat or atonement cover. It was the gold lid covering the Ark of the Covenant, which was a chest that contained the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It was the place where God was present with his people. This is where he would give them commands where he would manifest his glory to them. And this is where before Christ on the day of atonement, the sacrificial blood would be sprinkled and where God's wrath towards his people's sin would be appeased. The sacrificial blood would literally be covering the law, which was inside the ark. What a beautiful picture of what Christ's blood does for us. By using the same word here for propitiation, Paul is saying, but now, Christ is where God meets his people and deals with our sin problem. And through his atoning blood, God's wrath is completely, once and for all, satisfied. Propitiation was a term used frequently among pagan religions when followers had to bring sacrifices and hope that they would be acceptable to whatever God they were trying to appease. The difference with Christianity is that our God not only provides the sacrifice, but he is the sacrifice. When studying this, I kept coming back to the story of Abraham and Isaac. 
God tells Abraham to take his beloved son, the son he had longed for and waited for and prayed for, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering, a symbol of his complete submission to God. Abraham obeys. He takes Isaac to Mount Moriah. They set up the altar. And Isaac asks his father, where is the lamb for the offering? Abraham responds to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb. Abraham then binds up Isaac and prepares to sacrifice him. But the Lord intervenes and stops him from harming Isaac. God does provide an animal to be sacrificed, but it's not a lamb. It's a ram that is caught in the woods. But now the lamb of God has been offered, the perfect unblemished substitute for you and me. Christ who lived a perfectly obedient life took the place on the cross that I deserved. Charles Cranfield says it better than I could. God, because in his mercy, he willed to forgive sinful man and being truly merciful, willed to forgive them righteously, that is, without in any way condoning their sin, purposed to direct against his very own self in the person of his son, the full weight of that righteous wrath, which they deserved. The penalty for sin is death and the debt is mine. Christ willingly takes my punishment in exchange for his spotless record. And in return, I get his reward. And third, Christ's crucifixion demonstrates God's righteousness. Christ on the cross was a public demonstration of God's justice being satisfied on behalf of present and future sinners, as well as for those sinners before who went unpunished. Paul says that God in his divine forbearance, his divine self-control or restraint passed over former sins, accepting partial payment by the blood of animals, knowing that the full penalty for their sins would be paid at the cross. The Old Testament sacrificial system caused God's people to look forward to a day when once and for all, a sacrifice would be made to cover all sin for all times and all people. The due penalty for sin was paid and a right relationship with God was restored in and through the righteousness of Christ. Through faith, Jesus gives us his righteousness as a gift. But it isn't just for us, it's for all who have faith, those before Jesus and those after Jesus. If we are in Christ, we are pronounced righteous. On the cross, the wrath, of, the wrath and love of God were both perfectly demonstrated. We see both God's justice and his justifying love. All right, let's read the rest of the passage. I spent way less time on this, so... Let's start at verse 27. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold <clears throat> that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews, Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? <clears throat> yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. 
Being right with God makes bragging impossible. We have already determined that there is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. There's no tally sheet of our good deeds. And if there were, we would never balance our sheet with God's demand for holiness. Therefore, we have nothing to boast in. Even our good deeds are like filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. Our right standing before God has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus and his fulfillment of the law. But the Jewish Romans keep trying to puff themselves up by saying they uphold the law and they've been circumcised and that gives them higher standing before God. Paul has proven that based on the law, they've failed. We can't do anything to elevate our size, ourselves, even if we wanted to. And we don't need to. Christ has done it all. It was a gift. Christ gives it to us freely. And thank you, Jesus, that my standing before God is not based on anything I've done, but based on the righteousness of God. And if it were based on the law, what would that mean for the Gentiles or non-Jews who were not under the requirements of the law? Is there no hope for them? The Jews themselves proclaim that there is one God. The confession of faith, which opens every synagogue meeting is "Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. If there is only one God, then he must be God of both the Jews and the Gentiles. And therefore the way to be right with God is the same for both the Jew and the Gentile. Could you imagine if God full of infinite love and mercy chose a small group of unfaithful people to save, condemning all the rest of mankind to eternal hell. This is contrary to the very essence of who God is. Therefore, it is certain that this one God of goodness and grace offers salvation to all of humanity through the same means. And that means is faith in the righteous work of Jesus Christ. We are all sinners saved by the grace of a loving God through the sacrifice of Jesus. So then, does salvation through faith mean that the law is null and void? No. In fact, it should strengthen the law. Formerly, people tried to be good and obey the law to serve God because they were afraid of God and his punishment. Christ's death on the cross replaces that fear with love. Now we obey and serve out of a sincere love of God and gratitude for what he has done for us. If we truly believe in Jesus, it's going to change us. Our obedience to the law and our good deeds are evidence of that change in our lives. We don't do these things to earn favor from God. We do it in response to the favor that God has freely shown us. It's not about us at all. It's all about Jesus. He is the righteous one, and he is the one who makes us righteous. The punishment for sin is death. But God loves us. He doesn't want to spend eternity without us. So he comes down himself. He pays the price himself for those he loves. And he makes his grace available to anyone, everyone who believes, who puts their faith in him. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are right with God. It is a done deal and it is forever. Pray with me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are the Lamb of God, that you are the perfect kinsman redeemer, and that you are complete righteousness. Thank you that you didn't leave us dead in our sins, but that you took our sin 
and gave us your perfect record. You are so good to us, Lord, and we love you. Help us to live a life of obedience out of gratitude for the free gift of grace that you have given us and help us to show grace to others. In Jesus' name, amen.